This podcast is made in association with Wave Motion Canon. You can contact us on Twitter at Wateridesho or email us wateridesho at gmail.com. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. Like, subscribe, follow, and share. Wateridesho. You wouldn't download a car. <laughs> Why would you download this? <laughs> or <movie>? would I? <laughs> <laughs> Hey everybody, welcome back to Companion Piece. Uh, This is episode two. I am uh, the subtle doctor, the husbando uh, of the companionship, and along with with me here is my waifu. (laughs) (laughs) Hello! This is Annie. She's back. Yes. And on this episode of Companion Piece, we are going to be diving into the 2016 production IG anime film, Miss Hokusai. And I have to say, we, we watched it last night and it's, it's quite something to watch a really excellent film with your best friend slash spouse and then not be able to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, that was not fun. Um, <laughs> we just sort of stared at each other for a long time and uh, we're like, well, so guess we shouldn't start tonight because it's no. one in the morning, but wow. Pretty good. Yeah. Very vague. <laughs> yeah. Painful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But um, judging by Annie's, like, stack of notes here i think we're gonna have a lot to to Uh say yeah like um so obviously paprika was my first venture into this and i came in cold and like no note taking felt very underprepared i probably swung a little too far in the opposite direction here but <laughs> but there's so much going on in this movie and there's so much i mean be, because it's based on historical figures there's just there's just so much to to uncover and to you know that makes the setting so much more rich if you're aware of it and um yeah, so I wanted to be aware. So notes, many, many notes. So before we get into discussing the particulars of the film, let's just briefly set it up uh, for those who don't know. Um, I mentioned earlier it was a 2016 production IG film. Um, it's based on a manga called Saru Subiri by um, Hinako Sugira, who passed away. Uh, I believe in 2005, unfortunately, due uh, due to complications from cancer. But um, she did for I think her most of her manga career do historical works based on the Edo period, and Miss Hokusai uh, is also one of those. It is uh, also directed by Kei Chihara at IG, who directed the film Colorful which I haven't seen but would like to see. Uh, but it's one of those that every time I read the description, I just think to myself, I'm not sure if I'm like emotionally prepared for this movie. It seems very sad. 
so yeah, so this film, it takes place in very late Edo period, right? Like yes. uh, Japan. Yes, and I'm glad you mentioned the Edo period, Chuck. Because <laughs> I feel like it's so central to the movie okay. and what happens in the movie. And I read an interview that the director did with Mary Sue, and he hits on it, you know, several times. So I really think we should talk a little bit about the Edo period. Well, obviously, it's set in the Edo period because that's when it happened. But what are some of the qualities of that period that are uh, that are at play in the film and in very distinct ways. Uh, Some important things to know about the period, and sorry if everybody already knows these things, but it's new to me. So, started in 1603. We we only know about them from Moroni Kenshin. (laughs) Like, this is is the, uh, you know, the the big Meiji revolution that Kenshin took part in. Like, after... (gasps) Dots connected. Yeah, so, like, the, the epilogue in the film... It leaves off in like the 1870s, which is right before, you know, the Tokugawa shogunate, uh, the shogun's government uh, will fall and the Meiji government will take its place and well, sort I... of help modernize Japan. Okay, so the Edo period. Yes. Began in 1603 with the consolidation of the shogunate. You had more of a feudal system before then, and it ended with the fall of Edo in 1868. The period was characterized by stability. Um, It was a very tight system. Uh, Economically, you had a lot of growth. You had a very strict social order and a caste system. There was a a real push for isolationism. Oh, for Uh, sure in terms of foreign policy. The population was very stable. You did not have wars going on because you didn't have feudal lords fighting against feudal lords constantly. And because of all this stability and growth and everything, the arts and culture had a real explosion during this time. Because, Mm -hmm. of course, when people aren't fighting wars and they have money, uh, you know, they can turn to other things. Um... So one thing that was really interesting to me that I learned, it was a very isolationist time. You had, I mean, trade was tightly restricted. There was one port, the the Dutch port in Nagasaki Harbor, right. Dejima, where people were able to come in and out. And the only people that were able to come in and out were China, the Dutch East India Company, and for a teeny bit of time, uh, the English. However, and which can I just say, based on how things went in the new world, can you really (laughs) blame them for just blasting foreigners whenever they saw them? I mean, you know, so, so anyway, I found it so interesting that despite the fact that you have this isolationism happening in the arts and sciences, you saw a lot of Western influence. Mm. Which I thought was just so interesting because through trade with the Dutch, who I guess were less uh, forceful than some of their other European counterparts, ah. <laughs> um, 
you the had Dutch thing- being chill. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. A theme that continues to this day. <laughs> you had, um, as far as the arts went, um, Western takes on perspective kind of started being introduced. You saw it in the art of Hokusai um, in particular. So that is the Edo period and how it related to the arts in particular. Moving from the Edo period... Well, can we... Um, oh, so, oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, um, go ahead. One of the things I think is is neat um, about the Edo period, that, and you mentioned the isolation, like um, Western influence, um, we found in this movie like creeped into the arts but like uh it it did not really affect like customs too much at this point or the wardrobe very much at this point the the haircuts were still very traditional the men you know had um the top knots and uh shaved the top of their heads and like so in some ways you watch this movie and you think about how kind of the rest of the world was um at that time like in the early 19th century um and it's just an interesting contrast to think about like the way that um culture and technology was moving around the world but it you know it took japan i think a really really long time to to sort of seem like it was lagging behind because this is a a culture and society that was like established for a long long time and for a long time they were ahead of everyone else in those respects well well and there were but there were a lot of technological advancements happening i mean the movie doesn't really hone in on them but with um with uh what is the word um automation you know sort of like early robotics Hmm. that was again through the the sciences, they were that, making that anime was happening in that period. <laughs> um, so uh, you know, there there were definitely advancements happening. I'm not too familiar, honestly, with the 18 early 1800s, even in the states. Like, when did cars happen? I don't really. Know. <laughs> I don't know um, either. <laughs> so I don't know how different it was. We're history failures <laughs> when it comes to. But ask me about the Edo period because. <laughs> I can tell you about the Edo period. Ask me about my Tokugawa tattoo. Um, So, but it's not real. We're not really transitioning out of it. One of the major pushes that was happening in art during the time was um, the whole process of ukiyo-e, which was the process by which Hokusai and many artists of the time worked. Printmaking with woodblock prints. It was an extremely popular style and one that became very influential um, around the world because you had people like Van Gogh and mm-hmm. other major Western artists who were influenced by this style because, you know, eventually trade opened up more and um, and people became sort of Japanophiles artistically so early on. You have Van Gogh. Showing up in other period anime, oh, like, yeah, yeah. like uh, Samurai Champloo, <laughs> yeah. or do, okay. I think, doesn't he sneak into the country or something like that? It's been a while since I've seen that episode, but but I, Van well, Gogh is go. present. Yes, <laughs> well, and he and he, you know, reportedly yes, was was influenced by these kind of works, and you can see it. I feel like in a lot of the work of that time. But so something again connected with this interview 
with Hara and and um uh Mary Sue. He talk he, now he's very humble uh, is the impression that I got both from the interview and we watched a little bit of the special features after. Um he seems extremely self-effacing, you know, he talks a lot about uh the creator of the the manga mm-hmm. and you know, her abilities and how he was jealous of them. And when the Mary Sue asked him uh, about being an artist, he was quick to say that he does not consider himself an artist. He considers himself an artisan. And he talked about the way that the animation industry is echoed in the, in the process of ukiyo-e and printmaking that you had at that point you had a publisher who was responsible for commissioning and promoting things uh, like a producer you had the artists who would make the images you had the wood carvers who would prepare the blocks you had the printers who would make the actual print onto the paper and it was it was just a team effort and so he wanted to um again show how that echoes what he does in directing and that, yes, that you have so many people involved. Uh, it's a unique kind of art piece that comes out of that. Mm-hmm. You're, you're basing it on someone else's work. You're creating a unique story. You have people who have to make the characters and it's all. And the storyboarder, which it, Hara did as well. Um, sometimes the director doesn't do that, but I think that's, I think pretty often the director will do the storyboarding. It's a very collectivist kind of process, which I think is, um, is not as typical culturally in, in, I mean, you think of the U S as a very individualistic kind of mindset. Not that, I mean, of course you have many things in our country that are done collectively, but it's, a lot of times when you hear them spoken about, it's a single entity who kind yes. of gets the the um, the accolades for these things. We uh, we love our auteurs here. Yeah, and so it was uh, it was unique and very cool to hear a director speaking about just. I mean, and of course he's a humble man. I mean, he's extremely gifted and uh, responsible for a a large part of this process, but. But again, to reflect that idea that so many people are involved and, and that that's how it's been with art for centuries, um, we just sort of forget to view it that way. You and, had, uh, you, even, even like, um, you know, Michelangelo had dozens of, uh, apprentices, you know, filling in color and all. So yes, you, it's not only the single artist who goes out and creates a thing. A lot of times you have, yes, many people involved. Absolutely. And even this speaks to the humility of the director um, as well. Like the, the family of the mangaka was involved. Like he reached out to them for uh, for their blessing um, uh, before embarking on production in 2013, like he wrote them a long letter describing like his passion for uh, the artist's work and how much he really, really wanted to make uh, to make the story. And that just, I think, speaks to the the collective mindset uh, that you're talking about and how um, anime production is approached there. Yeah, yeah. 
one more thing before we get to the movie. Okay. So I wanted Saying a lot to, of names. Um, <laughs> oh, so painful. So many names that I don't know how to pronounce. Which really, that, I mean, we were in a hurry to talk about this. I feel like I should have sat with YouTube and looked up pronunciations and listened to them over and over until I could say them totally properly. So um, let's talk a little bit about the historic Hokusai and OA. Okay, okay. The, oh. These one, these, yeah, are the main two characters in the film. Um, and to be quite honest, th- this is going to be all you. I'm going to, I pass you the ball and I let you run with it because I don't know too much about the historical figures. Okay, I love art. It's kind of a thing for me. You are an artist. Well, a very not productive artist. A drawer and a painter. Okay. And, um, and so, but even, even if you don't have that, I mean, think of a painting of a Japanese wave. I, I guarantee you Uh the image that you Uh have in your head, it is, it is Hokusai. It, that. It's incredibly familiar. Yes. It's iconic. Um, you know, and that is the man that we're talking about who produced that piece. He, um, he was born around 1760-ish, as, as we often don't exactly know the dates for these things. He began painting at six, was the son of a mirror maker, and that's probably how he ended up in the arts, huh. you know, because again, you had such a tightly structured society, um, you know, there wasn't a lot of movement. <laughs> it's not like you could wake up and be like, I am a... I'm a farmer, but you know what? I'm going to become an artist. So uh, he went by over 30 names over the course of his lifetime. And okay. yeah, and while it was not, it was not atypical for artists to have several names that they were known by, it, he had more than any other known artist for sure. Like a hip hop star. Like Prince. <laughs> um, lots of AKAs. <laughs> yes. Yes. And a lo- and as you would imagine, I think, a lot of these name changes reflected stylistic or production kind of changes that were significant. Um, but we'll just call him Hokusai. Yes. He was, in fact, as depicted in the movie, um, a showman. And he had a gift for self-promotion. The, the 600-foot portrait... That he did of Daruma mm-hmm. in in the movie that really happened. He had a it was a like a six hundred foot portrait done with brooms and buckets of ink. It's like the that opening he did for the court. The opening scene of the movie, right? Yes, yes. So that was a real thing. Um, you know, yes, showmanship. And he there was there's another story that he was competing against a more traditional artist for the court to see, you know, who was the best. Mm-hmm. And he painted a blue, like wavy line on paper, and then he painted chickens' feet red and had them run across the paper. He said it was a landscape of the Tatsuta mm-hmm. River. With maple leaves, and wow. he won the competition. <laughs> so, wow, that uh, that bullshit artistry also also <laughs> depicted in the film by him, isn't that by great? the character? That's amazing. I love well, it. It's a great story. Yes, yes. So, I mean, just the fact that these stories, you know, float around this many 
this many centuries after his death, like obviously he had that spark. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, connected with people, these things. Yes, yes. Uh, so his, his the work he's best known for, obviously, is um, I would say the Great Wave off Kanagawa, which is that painting that, of course, you see depicted in the movie as well. And um, it was part of a series called 36 Views of Mount Fuji. He did another series called 100 100 (laughs) Views of Mount Fuji. And um, apparently his obsession with Mount Fuji in real life was related to his religious beliefs, as Hmm. was his name, because Hokusai means North Studio, and is actually an abbreviation for North Star Studio. And oh, wow. the North Star was associated with a deity. And Mount Fuji was linked traditionally with eternal life. Uh, you had folk tales where there was an elixir of life on the peak of the mountain. And um, it was seen as a source of a secret immortality. And if you think about it, you know, his obsession with Mount Fuji sort of in an artistic sense it gave him immortality you know we're yes we know who he is yeah making movies about him people will continue to know his art is iconic and highly influential and so there you go another another um genre of the ukiyo-e was called shunga and it was the erotica okay this is gonna be a six degrees of you might not remember. There's a painting that I I knew about. You know, I, I think it's fairly well known. But some friends who, who have seen it said so they first saw it in Mad Men. Because Bert has it in his office. Oh. The Dream of the Fisherman's right. Wife. That is Hokusai. Oh, um, wow. And... We joke about it being early tentacle porn because it really right. is. It's, it's yeah, yeah, graphic so. depiction of octopuses, octopi pleasuring a woman. So the, the Kurt Eichenwald. Special. Yeah. So that is that is his uh, most famous piece of shunga, but it was a very popular uh, genre. And across, I found this interesting, across social classes and across genders, you know, there it was common for brides to be gifted with shunga on their wedding wow. day, you know, for wedding gifts. And yes, so that very, is... very popular and not at all, uh, you know, hush, hush. <laughs> so, so his daughter, his real historical daughter, Oe, who was... Indeed, also a painter in her own right. She worked as a production assistant to her father, um, as in the movie. Mm-hmm. It's how she got her start. Uh, I, I found it very useful and interesting to know. This information I got from an article in Japan Times called Painting Women of Japan. There was a list of women artists compiled in 1858. And it reflected that there were around 80 women painters active around the country. So during the Edo period, we have the late Edo, there were women painters active. 
obviously, as you would expect, <laughs> they didn't get the same attention as their counterparts. Although you you had some, you, there was um, there were I think only two women that served as artists to the imperial household, but you you did have some. But we're really only recently getting to a time where we explore their work and more is known about it. And you've had some uh, exhibitions of what they've done. and But they're just not as remembered. You but... mean <clears throat> women are underrepresented in history? <laughs> How could this be? I know. I know. Unreal. Yes. Yes. You heard it here first. Breaking news. So many of the women as you would expect, who were artists during this time, were daughters of artists, artisans, and came into it that way. Her father was married twice, and and the little girl depicted as her sister in the movie. Um, Onow. She really did have a sister named Onow. Mm. Not, now, nothing is really known about her except her name, but uh, she was a real little human being. So... She was an extremely skilled uh, painter of... There There were several forms of ukiyo-e. One form was called bijinga. Bijinga? B-I-J-I-N hyphen G-A. And it was the depiction of beautiful women. Okay. She was especially known for that. Um and you see her in the movie, you know, painting courtesans yeah, and that yeah. kind of thing. And yes, she excelled in that. Uh, and he, he uh, apparently her father really did say that uh, his work in that area was not a match for hers because hers was so incredible. Really, ma'am. I I really like these details being represented in the movie. Yeah, I know, I know. I and you could see in the in the special features the extreme attention to detail that they had, you know, for reflecting the period historically. So mm-hmm. obviously they just delved very deeply into the the biographical details of of these people to yeah, pull yeah. in all of this history. And the architecture, you know, to get the, the drawings right of the buildings and yes. the layouts of the city and things. They would they they did their fair share of scouting and sort of working their bodies into odd angles to get different perspectives on doorways and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's said that she was also eccentric like her father, um, charitable. And that she she wanted to become a female Jian sage. I, that's some kind of religious thing that I haven't looked up. But this is where the movie well, I did look it up, but I couldn't tell you all about it at this point. This is the movie. I think we'll we'll, we'll talk about it. it. Departs from that, I think, in some ways. Mm, I mean, I think I think otherworldliness. You know, the seeing of visions. And I think that was, a, I mean, it was That's a huge true. part of the movie. So For I sure. think they were they were hitting on that aspect of her and her father's uh, personalities. Yes. No, their, you're right about that. Their uh, interest you're in right the religious. That. And yes, yeah, so she was a painter. She, I, I find it amusing. She married an artist in 1824. They didn't get along because she found him uh, like amusingly bad artist. Ah! 
<laughs> so they they divorced 1827, and she did live with her father then for the rest of her life as the movie. <laughs> couldn't actors. stand to be around, like, the inferior <laughs> work. Is... Well, yeah, and she's so scornful in the movie, you know, of, I know. of those who are derivative or, you know, just, yes, I love that they really did capture that obviously real characteristic about her. Um, so that is her. She, a lot of her work is depicted, you know, you see it in the credits at the end of the movie. Beauty, in cloth in the moonlight, Yoshiwara night scene, uh, which I think is one of the ones that they show at the end. Uh, and she, she hid her name in it with, mm. there's the, the, um, the writing on the lanterns sort of puts her oh, name into the scene, which I yes. find very cool. Uh, Kurua in grid view, three women playing musical instruments. You had a lot of, yes, courtesans. Oh, courtesans showing themselves to the strollers through the grill. I think that's another wow. one that they showed. And it, and I think there was a part in the movie where when I saw it, I recognized yeah. that that painting. So yeah, those are some of her better known works. <laughs> hey, we watched a movie. We didn't just learn things about history that were cool. <laughs> This has been our podcast that we recorded from <laughs> reading Wikipedia. But really, <laughs> I mean, if we just stopped here and you watch the movie now <laughs> with all of yeah. that information, it really enriches the a, watching of the film. It's a very good point, actually. So we've been talking a lot about the context uh, for this movie. We've been saying a lot of names, like... Oh, so many names! In places and art styles... But um, if you are like coming into this cold and don't know what Miss Hokusai is about, uh, we will we'll try to summarize it for you here before we get into the nitty gritty of our own like interpretations of the movie and things that we thought were significant. So this is a story of uh, Oe, uh, who is the daughter of the famous artist Hokusai who in this film, uh, his first name is Tetsuzo, and she often just calls her father Tetsuzo. Like, he's just a guy instead of her her dad, her Otosan. And we, perhaps this is, like, a language that changed, like, when the historical period changed or whatever. But this is really, like, her story, chiefly. Um, this is about, like, a year or, or maybe a little more in her, in her life. Um her life as an artist kind of her her growing uh in that area her life as uh, a daughter you know her relationship with her father Tetsuzo and her mother um you know plays out and the dynamic there is interesting it's about her life as a as a big sister we mentioned uh Onao uh in this film he uh sorry in this film she is uh, a younger daughter, again, of uh, Tetsuzo, and uh, she has been born blind. And so you have kind of an interesting family di- uh, dynamic, a sad family dynamic happening there um, that we will get into um, between Oe, Onao, and their father. As far as like <laughs> summarizing the movie further, I mean, I think... It's it's not a movie where like a whole bunch of significant things happen. There's no huge battle or external conflict. It is again just a year in or or, or so in in this woman's life 
in this particularly uh, intriguing period of Japanese history. So what did we think of this movie? What uh, I guess we'll start it off like I started off the Paprika discussion last time. Like, Annie, when you, a year from now, think of this film, this Hokusai, uh, what are you going to think about? What stands out to you? Okay. Um, there were a few currents that really uh, pulled me in, starting with... um family and the and the ways that imperfect people uh sort of show their love and relate to one another and feeding into that as this was a family of artists um ideas about perception and inspiration mm-hmm. uh where that comes and how we relay that to one another um those were the major points for me that will stick out yeah uh both of those definitely were things that that were significant to me i thought that the way that the the movie captured uh this kind of family life uh was very it felt very real it felt you know it's it's not a perfect family um but it's also it there's no like villains necessarily out and out in the family. Although I guess you could argue about uh, Tetsuzo as a father. Um, and I probably will later on when we get to that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I thought that the depiction of a family was really, really good. That will stick with me. Um, definitely stuff about the creative process and inspiration like that I thought was incredibly fascinating. This movie could be saying something rather interesting about um, about the nature of reality. Uh, so I think I, I at least like picked up on kind of a metaphysical thread um, sure. in in the movie. And I guess I wanted to know what you thought of that. If you have any thoughts on that in particular, because there are there are several scenes in the movie where things like dragons and spirits um you know things come from paintings to visit our world like but it's also shown that not everybody can see them or at least not everyone sees them or experiences them in the same way when these when these sorts of things happen these i guess the right term is magical realist things happen um in in film i i wonder like do do you think this is like chiefly symbolic or allegorical or um and like is that the is that the utility for these things to to like the sole utility for these things to be present in the movie uh or do you think there's something else happening no i don't think that's their sole function of course they're they're related to sort of the coming down of inspiration that you know there's a lot of work and process involved but at some point you're waiting for this moment that is beyond the physical reality Mm. but also um hara hara had mentioned in his interview that sugiura 
ha was reported to have seen visions. I think that fact, the idea of inspiration as outside the physical, and the time period um, where things like Buddhism and Shinto were strongly at play, uh, I think that a, a spiritual kind of otherworldly element was um, just necessary to the movie. And these two artists were religious and believed in otherworldly things. So, you know, I think the, the place for them was necessary in the movie. I don't think they're just a shorthand for something. I think there's a combination of reasons that they existed in the movie, although they did uh, serve that function as well. I definitely agree. I, I'm glad that you that you also agree. Be being much smarter than me, I was worried that you would come. Uh, stop it. You would come over the top of like, well, you know what? Oh like, my God. here's the reason these things are in, and then I would just feel dumb for <sighs> concocting this theory. But, but yes, I think like the presence of supernatural beings and kind of the way that they, the way that they interact with natural ones like us, was it was kind of amazing in that movie i felt like art was kind of a portal was a portal for those things to kind of come uh come into this part of reality um maybe because to make art artists are reaching toward that for inspiration yeah, that this you know. idea that there's like a plane beyond what is um, what is perceivable to what is the word that she used for the the young man who uh, ah um brazen this to the she, brazen she just called this you know? one like up and coming artist brazen because <laughs> he was like he, he just such a hack she thought yes and so you have this uh this separation between um art that's merely popular and and art that is a, produced by people who have a connection to this whatever it is beyond the veil and she I, that distinction is very important to her um and you see that distinction really fleshed out when they all go to see the courtesan who is having an out of body experience and I wanted to talk about, this is another uh, thing that's useful to know. There was a belief, a popular belief, during this time that there was something called ikirio. They were living ghosts. Mm -hmm. So that you could, you could have a spirit come out of your body and go enact things in the world. Mm separate from your awareness of it or any real relation to you. Um, and so you have this courtesan who is experiencing this and it's she and her father who see it. And you don't really even, you know, at some point... She being O.A. O.A. Yes, and her father. O.A. and her father see it. The young man, you know, I don't know. Like, there's a point at which he starts back, but you never really get a sense that he perceived the same things that they were perceiving. Mm -hmm. So that that's sort of a a lovely visual scene 
of this idea that there are those who perceive and there are those who don't perceive. And there's a difference in the kind of art that they are capable mm. of creating. Which I think, you know, will help the movie despite like a dragon being in the clouds and Ikirio, which by the way, can I just say Ikirio, probably the number one most convenient excuse for drunk men. It wasn't me that you caught with the lady. It was an Ikirio. I was asleep at my friend's house. Um, but no, like despite the appearance of these things, like the fact that, um, they're not just wandering around and interacting with everyone. That there are only certain people, like people with imagination, people with inspiration, spiritual people, connected people. Like, they kind of have access. And sometimes it can look like madness. You know, you have one lady who um, is, for whatever reason, because there's something wrong with a painting that uh, OA has done. Not necessarily something wrong, but something incomplete. Um, her father says, like, it's causing the owner of the painting's wife to become very disturbed and see visions and, and all that. Uh, but, you know, in this movie, it's like, is she disturbed? Is she seeing visions? Or is she just being visited by these things that that the movie says, like, are also a part of the real? are also interacting with you know humanity first of all i have to go back i love the scene where hokusai is relating his own experience oh (laughs) which is which is a lie (laughs) but the way that scene is animated and when the hands are sort of like flying in front of the moon and and rushing through the fields it was just so beautiful i got Mm -hmm. a lot of pleasure out of watching that scene I think it's it, it's a good place to tie in the way this idea of perception ties into the family dynam- dynamic. Yes. Because I think what you have is you have this whole family who has a gift for perception. And you have Hokusai passing it on to his daughter, Oe. And she in turn is passing on this ability for perception to own now. Yes. And and that's her gift to her, just as her father's. You know, I, I really that that scene where her sister is playing in the snow, and mm. of course it's it it's birthed out of this whole scene where they're walking through the snow and she's describing everything she's seeing and she's talking about the colors and um and her sister is playing with this boy and she has a flashback to herself with her father as a young girl trying to engage him in play in the snow. And I loved that scene, the flashback itself, because what you see is that he is not able to gift her in the same way that she gifts her sister. But what he does is he gives in that moment, he does engage with her and he gives her the gift that he is able to give her, which is that they stop playing and they sit down and he shows her something of how to translate what she's seeing around her onto the page. And so while while his, the way he experiences his gift of perception 
he's very uncomfortable navigating it with his youngest daughter who's blind because that is such a stumbling block for him. It's like he is incapable of giving her what she needs. But you have Oe, who has the perfect gift to give her sister, to pass that on to her sister. And I just thought that dynamic was, it was painful, of course, because as a parent, you see a parent not engaging with their child, and it's so sad. But at the same time, it's, you know, it's, it felt very real too. And it doesn't, like you said, it doesn't make him a villain in the movie. It makes him sort of handicapped in his own way. This idea that everyone has a, a blind spot, uh, blind. I mean, literally yeah. blindness is kind of the image that you get, but he has this blind spot. He cannot, he can't make himself do this. He doesn't understand how. OA has her blind spots. She can't. She does not know how to translate in in the movie this idea of passion. Uh, she she's very technically correct, um, and she has her. She's still learning. She doesn't know how to bring balance to her paintings in the same way that her father does, which is what he's trying to show her. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, Ona has her literal blindness that she's trying to overcome. So each of them is trying to overcome mm-hmm. their limitations. Um, to the best way they know how and you and you get a sense of course because historically Hokusai really did say and I'm going to read the quote from the age of six I had a passion for copying the form of things and since the age of 50 I have published many drawings yet of all I drew by my 70th year there is nothing worth taking into account at 73 years I partly understand understood the structure of animals birds insects and fishes and the life of grasses and plants And so, at 86, I shall progress further. At 90, I shall even further penetrate their secret meaning. And by 100, I shall perhaps truly have reached the level of the marvelous and divine. When I am 110, each dot, each line will possess a life of its own. And he really did lament on his deathbed if he could just have another 10 years, or five even, he could be a real painter. So, I, thought, I thought of this, by the way, when Hara was talking. Like, whenever he was like, no, 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 I'm not an artist. Oh, this is yes. like what uh, what uh, Tetsuzo says at the end of the movie. <laughs> yes, you have this sense in each character, uh, each of the main characters, each of the members of the, of the family, um, this idea of just constantly striving, of... of finding your fulfillment in, in your perception, but then trying to overcome the the limitations that you have on yourself yeah um yeah that is beautiful each of these characters has as you say blind spots and limits but almost because of them the things that they can see and the perception and perspective they do have is like enhanced like so oh now she's blind of course she can't see but she still relates to the world around her, um, but relates in this different way. Like her per, her sort of um, perception set would be fundamentally different than ours, and she picks up on lots of things that people with sight do not pick up on. And I think this is actually really a helpful thing to think about when you're thinking about what the movie wants to say about the spiritual and the otherworldly, because in a way... It's analogous to that. You have some people uh, 
that relate to the world differently and they can pick up on that like their perception set will be different than someone like the brazen who doesn't have access to that right that's his blind spot weakness but <laughs> but he does have a keen ability to imitate what he likes and he makes a fair bit of money from doing that it seems yes um so everybody yeah i think the more that we talk about this like just perception and what it is like it's so important to the movie and in and in the movie kind of dealing with it um it also deals with like the fact that reality is so huge and big like be it oa uh tetsuzo onai brazen like nobody has the complete picture there are things that we're not seeing but the other people see because not because they're wrong but because they're there and they have access to it and just we can't see it. And even at the end of the movie, uh, and we're spoiling things now, by the way, Onai, Onau, excuse me, she she gets sick and she passes away. And the, the one of the last parts of the movie is Oe talking to her. Um, one might say praying to her, I suppose, but, but I think this is more of that message that... Um, this hard divide that we might want to put between natural, supernatural, past and present, living and dead, it's just a veil that is, you know, is accessible. We're all still part of the same, the same plane. Uh, well, different, maybe different planes, but part of the same existence and reality. Like she's, she's still talking to Onal. Um and even at the end where her future self kind of has a narration and talks about things that are happening in the past almost as if she's there sort of seeing it i think that's more of the like the blurring uh like things that you know realities that we'd want to put a hard line like natural and supernatural past and future you have future her that's present in the movie talking about past her or what we perceive as present her right because we're in the moment we're taking this in um, as she, the character is experiencing it. Um, and I want to go back to what you said too about the the heightened sense of perception that you can get um, that that can flow out of your limitations. Mm-hmm. Um, I liked the way that they. There was a moment where um, Onao was on the bridge with her sister because she loves bridges. Her father painted a lot of bridges, mm-hmm. and. You have, she, she's, her, her sense of smell, you know, she's smelling things. Mm-hmm. Earlier in the movie, uh, her father is speaking to, I believe it was Zenjiro. Right. And telling him, you know, his people aren't real and they crumple because they're just not <laughs> yes. real at all. But that he likes the way his drawings smell. Right. Ma- That's but- right. So you have this theme of smelling of like alternate means of perception again between the father and the daughter who have no meaningful physical connection but they have this spiritual connection this this shared ability um and I like the way that that was expressed through this idea of smell another thing I want to talk about is are, are the differences and similarities personality wise between father and daughter because you have this father who is depicted as 
you know, this sort of showman. She calls him a nutty old man at the very beginning of the movie. Um, you know, we know these stories <laughs> about him now, uh, of his self-promotion in court and the, the stunts kind of that he would pull to get attention. Um, although at the same time, in the movie, he is, he's very sort of flat, Yes. And in his expressions and his, uh, and so is she, you know, you have this very staid, uh, very calm, very almost cold, which, and cold is the word I would use, except when she is with her sister. And I, I thought that was so interesting that you have all these young men who are interested in her that are obviously sort of trying to eke some sort of response out of her. Uh, she has a little bit of a response to, um, what is his name, Chuck? Starts with an H. I yeah, I don't remember. He's a very tall art student. Yes, the fishmonger. That's yes, how I kept referring to him right. in my notes. Um, and, her, and her sister sees her emotion, so to speak. Uh, while they're on the bridge and meet with this young man. But uh, it was so interesting that her her feelings toward him were not enough to conquer the disgust she felt by his uh, about his admiration for some of Brazen's work. Like, yeah. she... Her, the things that she, deep down, and I think you see in the conclusion of the movie, that really moved her the most were her relation with her sister... And her father. Yeah. And her art. And everything else, it was just so much, you know, flotsam and jetsam. She wasn't... She she felt something, again, for this young man. But, but between his just absolute effrontery of giving credit where it was not due, in her mind, and then appearing with another young woman... Um, even in that scene where she sees them together and you know there's this emotion under the surface, there's just nothing again. Uh, the only time after that that you eke out that sort of emotion is when she's with her sister, you know, when you really see her relax, when she's working, and when she sees fire. Which I think is such an interesting counterpoint to what you see as the sort of cold, you know, passive on the surface nature of how she carries herself, but her obsession with fire just destroying things. I loved that because they, I think they mention fire and also storms. Like, I think he, uh, Tetsuzo talks about a storm being the, one of the first things he saw a dragon in the clouds, like these violent, natural weather phenomena sort of disrupting like everyday yes. happenings like th those things being the things that like uh kind of capture their imagination um, yes and that and that bring in that inspiration it's sort of the violence and the um and i mean the, again the complete opposite of how they're carrying themselves that um sort of prompts them into this creative space and again, in his interview, Hara was saying that it's very Edo, <laughs> you know, this idea that you have this very calm, passive sort of surface and underneath are these roiling kind of boiling emotions. But the way 
they're depicted, you know they're there, but it's so subtle mm. and you and you become aware of them on based on these very subtle, quiet cues, which really appeals to me. I I mean I just love that. I love subtlety in art. Um and I think that was life back then probably as well too. Like yes, re- relational. Yes, those are Edo. Know. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is again why that period is so important. And but but yes, that you do have these that every time inspiration sort of comes down, it, it the it's the wind just picking up. It's a demon running down the street with a cart, you know, sort of in flame approaching where the painting is taking place. It's the it's the door blowing in yeah. when her sister sort of makes her presence known after she's died. It's yeah, it's it's nature it's storm it's violence it's fire it's it's the opposite of everything that is going in on in society and outwardly you're talking about the the characterizations and uh of tetsuzo and oa and i just focusing on oa i adored the way she was played and depicted in this movie uh we should mention played by a voice actress um who has never done anything else. This is her. I don't, I actually, I don't know. I don't have a lot of information at hand. I don't know if this is her um, debut role uh, as a 2015 project. You know, it's 2017 nearing its end. Now you think that if she was in the industry, she would have gotten more, more work or, or I suspect this is like a person who doesn't normally do this. And they, they wanted to just bring in because she fit what the uh, production staff wanted for the role. Would that would be my my supposition, but regardless, um, like you were saying, the the flat affect, de- de- yeah, that demeanor of Oe, you know, almost a sort of like, like indifference bordering on repugnance at times for the world and people uh, and their bad opinions <laughs> and bad art, like. It was um, it was played so well and drawn so well. One of the first shots when she's watching her father complete this dragon, and she's smoking a pipe. Her just kind of intense expression can, is really, really well. Can um, I can I interject here? <laughs> One of the first notes I wrote was those eyebrows, dude. <laughs> because like eyebrows were very like prominent in character design but when we were watching the special features you know they made a special point that her eyes were supposed to be very intense powerful and i think the strength of her brow it really played into this and and she had a bit of a strong jaw i thought and i i think that is somewhere where yes the character design uh was speaking to the character of the of the character you know it was so tightly tied in uh, this is also a thing that i'm reading a comic right now called battle angel alita and what puts it over the top is the eyes of the main character and how expressive they are and i think that's the case here like even though she's indifferent a lot of the time and she's cold like there's still a range of expressions of, of indifferent and cold almost like um, it just it, it felt so lifelike, and uh, and just seeing her um, also 
go to a festival or fair with a guy that was interested in her that and like le- let her let him buy her like flowers mm-hmm. and like food and she's just kind of like whatever i will do this because i have nothing to do right now i'm waiting Mm -hmm. on a on a another thing to to happen as another scheduled appointment and then at one probably the funniest part of the movie which has some funny moments um this is a it's a really nice mix of i think family drama and and comedy but the the probably the best joke is when he asked what she wished for at the wishing fountain, and she says a successful birth. <laughs> like, yes. Even though... Yes, that dry humor. <laughs> yeah, totally deadpan. Yes. Even though she is, you know, not with child, um, not seeing anyone. I think a virgin, and you mentioned uh, her dedication to her art. This lady was willing to lose her virginity at a brothel to um i don't know if a brothel is the right word at uh to a male prostitute for the sake of her art well and i think i think that that whole all of that arc with the the young men and the interest and the and then the attempt at you know feeling something sensual i think it's like you said it it was her trying to overcome what she perceived as a handicap Mm -hmm. she wanted to be able to interject the sensual into her art so even even those uh, sort of like stirrings of relationship were were for her to be viewed as in service of her art you know so and in the end i liked how in the end what drew real sort of passion from her on the page was being able to depict her sister which is where her emotion really lay so it 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 sort of culminated in a ceasing of attempting this thing that just was not working for her and channeling her energies instead to something that she really had feelings about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved that. While we're talking about the male prostitute, I thought the the contrast between him and the courtesan was really interesting. Yeah. Um, because... Again, you did have this caste society and you, you know, any occupation that was seen as sort of contrary to the tenets of Buddhism was like, they called them non-human or filthy. Mm. And while the courtesan was not practicing a very dissimilar kind of uh, occupation, she had this dignity because, uh, because, um, money i'm assuming and the way it changed hands and the way it sort of fed into entertainment but it was a very unique niche in that society whereas you had many 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 prostitutes who were just you know yes seen as filth and i think this young man really was obviously part of that aspect of the cast rather than the higher-ups so that was an interesting you know difference there but also uh I really thought it was so interesting the way when they animated his relating of his dream that he had of the gods just trampling everything. Oh, yes. The way it was depicted as this sort of messy black and white brushwork. It was very crude. And then immediately after you see her visualizing the same image and it's beautiful it's cast in this uh very bright light and everything is colored 
and the statue tramples her. And then the next scene, you see her bathed in this bright light and she's blinded by it. I think that's another image of the difference between those who are inspired and perceive and those who don't. This is the first time this is occurring to me. That is, you're so right. Because like, in his dream, it's pure destruction and it's sort of ugly and just the, yes. Just kind of line art. Yes. Like, and then, but for her, it's this beautiful thing and she herself is trampled and yet she comes out of it in the light yeah, kind of. And yeah. I I loved that moment of oh. the movie. It was just, it was incredible. It's that subtlety, you know, that quiet kind of juxtaposition that it's easy to miss, but it captures the whole message of Mm -hmm. the film, Um, you know, if you can even reduce it to a message. Can we talk about the best character in the movie? The puppy. The puppy. (laughs) (laughs) So cute. That was a cute puppy. Just the puppy wanders into their life and they, they kind of keep it around everyone needed that puppy i think yeah yeah everybody has a moment where they're snuggling it yes yes and you see it grow and it functions when brazen is kind of you know (laughs) like he's kind of down (laughs) about his abilities and the puppy's just you know he's like it's okay dude they hang out the most yes like there's she when oa comes back to get a comb for um her sort of rendezvous with the fishmonger that she is attracted to like brazen and the puppy are just laying there on their backs their legs sticking in the air it's very charming yes yes and i think it kind of uh it kind of sets him up against this idea of being just sort of puppy like like not like cute yeah. appealing mm-hmm. you know he has an appeal as an artist including as a character and um you know maybe he's not the best but he can get by on on the charm of what he's able to do there what what did you think of their kind of their living conditions i thought that was a really um like a efficient way to characterize them um yeah and she and she narrated this like they they weren't living in what i would call squalor but they never cooked or cleaned their house was just like art supplies places to sleep and crumpled up paintings or or drawings that they weren't and that was it and like and she was totally comfortable with that like yeah very much living for art and kind of not much else and and in some ways it made like the life of an artist during this time look look kind of uh fun and interesting Mm because you just you know made money to kind of keep yourself from your art and then you were free to kind of do whatever you needed to do to be inspired and eat and entertain yourself, you know, as long as you kept, um, kept up the painting work and, uh, and yeah, their, their, their life did look, um, did look quite peaceful. Uh, and which is something I feel like most Japanese period movies I see involve some sort of sword fighting. Well, and I, (laughs) I think too, though, it did, uh, it did also illustrate, the idea that while they were um while they were waiting for inspiration and while they were artists in that sense they were also working on commission they were working on deadlines you know there's a very unsexy aspect to all of it in which you it to a degree it doesn't matter if you're inspired or not you've yeah. got to get the work out 
the people who are paying you are waiting. And, Hello, uh, relationship to anime and anime production. Like, it's art is product. And, and, and very early on, and it always has been. Always has been. And very early on, you get this sense of the power of the people who are wanting these pieces because you have the distressed mm. messenger who is like, I don't <laughs> think he's going to want your heads, you know, but maybe. Uh, yeah, you, so... It, I think you'll want me to kill myself, too, which seems like it would be bad. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, but those are the stakes. So yeah. it it was... Um, <laughs> was I, didn't, I didn't want to ruin our watching experience. I mean, I might take back, like, this might be the funniest scene in the movie. Uh, I think it's, like, maybe the second or third scene when uh, Tessa's is finishing up painting the dragon and she's smoking and flicks fire. Fire oh, onto it, and it looks beautiful. This drawing, and you know, some ashes from her pipe get flicked onto it. And then, interestingly, that's the only scene we see her smoking. I think I don't think we see her smoke anymore. Maybe I this was another. Maybe this was another sort of commitment to art thing, where it's like, well, this one time, it, you know, fucked things up, and then she just cut it out hmm. because. But like, yeah, like the painting is burned, and like. No emotion on his face. Tetsuzo just gets up, puts his slippers on, leaves the house for hours. <laughs> exactly what I would do if, like, I don't know, this podcast became corrupted or something at the right as I was finishing it. <laughs> yeah, and of course, I mean, that dragon coming down was oh. the, you know, to inspire her to create the dragon was that first instance that we see of this this otherworldliness. Um, this is just a little Easter eggy kind of thing that I, that I caught because I had read about the history before the movie. Um, during the scene where the courtesan is, you know, her head is leaving her body, Hokusai makes reference to the ghost stories of someone named Bakken. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That was a Chinese ghost story. Well, what is so interesting is that he actually, in 1807, he collaborated with he was a novelist, Bakken, okay. who, who did, and, and they they were, and I think this is such an interesting illustration of how different times were in terms of the prioritizing of the arts, an artist like visual artists. So they were collaborating on on this illustrated series, and they they uh, clashed with each other. They were not getting along, and the publisher dropped Bakken. And kept <laughs> Hokusai on as the illustrator. That I mean, that would just never happen today. Wow. But um, but the visual was just so much more important that they just. I suppose. Isn't that interesting? Very interesting. So, but anyway, they really had collaborated at that point, which I thought was a fun little. I don't know. It was just fun. Yeah. Um. So I I do want to talk about the family dynamics. Uh, but I last kind of question I think I have for you about the art and perception and, and reality that that dimension of the film is um, going back to the painting that OA painted that caused uh, its um, owner's wife to be disturbed. Tetsuzo said that you know he, he looked at the painting and said, okay, I, I see what's wrong here. You're good. And because you know you're good, like, that's your problem. That's what's actually keeping you from being great. This painting is incomplete. There are loose ends. Mm -hmm. 
and then he painted, I think, a Buddha. On yes, the beach. yes. I will actually. So, like, what, what do you, what are the loose ends, uh, do that he was referring to there, and why do you think that that kind of quelled the uh, the owner's um, issues with the painting? Oh, let me tell you something. Okay. Because <laughs> I did, I did look this up. Um, so. I think the point, the larger point that he was making was if you have too much confidence in your own ability, you're not going to be looking for the areas in which you're weak and you will be incapable of improving. Um, I think that's what he was trying to tell her was that you, you have to be, you have to have a sense of humility, you know? Which she took to mean... I guess I should go see a male prostitute so I can be, make sensual drawings. <laughs> but I, I think that moment was important for her because I think it shifted her focus. I, I think she had the humility to recognize that this was not where she was going to flourish and she needed to focus on the areas that that she was going to flourish in. And I mean, this is all purely fictional, obviously. I, you know, uh, I she probably continued to paint uh, the shunga or whatever the, the erotica um but for the for the purposes of the story yes she left behind her quest to be perfect in an area and just sort of painted out of her own emotion which mm-hmm. is what she was lacking in the first place yes um so the the buddha that she that was added to the picture. I thought this was so interesting. And it's again, out of this idea of balance. Um, you have something called pure land Buddhism. He is what you would call the Amitabha. I mean, some of these words are Indian as this well. Is, because yes, exactly. has those roots. Exactly. Um, so none of y'all know how to and pronounce this. China so I don't care. So <laughs> Amitabha. Pure Land Buddha is who gets painted into that picture. And Pure Land Buddhism, basically the Pure Land is the idea of enlightenment. Um, and I think what the painting needed to be balanced was hope. You know? It was a painting of hell. I should probably point yes, that out. <laughs> yes. It was pure hell. And by adding... The um, oh, can, the hope of attainment of enlightenment to the painting, peace was restored in its mm, viewers. Yeah. Can I just say, who the hell is like, hey, I know what's a good idea. Let me commission a painting of hell and then hang it in my wife's room. <laughs> like, what a terrible idea. Uh, just, but hey, uh, I mean, we've already talked about like, he probably, you know, gave her when they got married a painting of an octopus pleasure woman. Right. D- culture's yes. different. It's yes. different. <laughs> was... Yes. Yes. That painting reminded me so much of the paintings of Hieronymus Bosch. Go Google him <laughs> and look at his paintings of hell. They are horrific. And interestingly, he was Dutch. Mm. <laughs> yes, it all comes around. Wow, okay. So yes, he did these similarly just hellish depict. I mean, hellish, haha, because it's hell. No, but seriously, no, they're awful. They're, they're grotesque. 
in a similar way that this painting was grotesque. Yeah. And it made me wonder about the Dutch influence. Oh, oh, another moment. I just want to call attention to this moment of the animation. When she was... She being I loved oh, that there was this juxtaposition again between the moment that OA is running to see the fire and the fire is destroying everything. And then the next scene is her with her sister walking in the snow. And then in the distance, you see smoke rising. Mm. But it's just such a, a transition. And I think it's a transition in terms of mood, too, between her kind of being roiled up and this idea of the inspiration and all of the, the flames, the, the undercurrent of passion inside, to the sort of peace uh, and comfort that her sister brings her. Oh, and another, I'm sorry, if I can just pull into this idea, okay, because it was incomplete earlier. You have... Like the hell painting. You you have the um, Onao, who smell is so important to her on the bridge in terms of her perceiving and overcoming her limitations. Mm -hmm. And you connect that to the fact that her father, he said... You know, that he... He liked the way the brazen's the, drawing smell. Yes, that he liked the way the brazen's drawing smell. And there was also the moment when uh, the fishmonger put his arm around uh, oh, OA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she... Her first thought was for his smell. And and the relation of the scent of his skin. Um, it, anyway, it was, it was clearly preoccupying her. So I, I knew there was another moment that, that smell connected all three of these characters. It's just another illustration of the way their perceptions are similar and, and the way all three of them are, are tied to this undercurrent of the other. They did some, you know, as you would probably expect more, they did some very tender things, I think, with um, with touch, with Onau. Mm-hmm. Um, they actually transition from the animation in the film to the famous wave painting. Uh, yes. There's a really lovely scene of um, of uh, Oe and Onal being canoed. Um, they're riding in a in a boat. Uh, they're going under a bridge again. She loves bridges. The little sister. So, uh, but Oe is, has taken. Onawa's hand and is running it through the water, letting fish pass it by. Like, you get the sense that um, this is the first time maybe that they've done this, perhaps because she'd been sick earlier. I think she was staying with a with a the Buddhist um, the Buddhist sister uh, earlier in the film, so she didn't really because I think Oe had to get permission to take her out at the beginning. So this now makes sense to me that I'm thinking about it. But um, but yeah, and her her feeling the snow, um, and then. The one kind of, I thought, incredible scene when she puts her hands on her father's face. Mm -hmm. And for the father experiencing it, they, as soon as Onao's hands touch his face, everything else in the background goes black. It's Mm -hmm. like all there is is that moment in his daughter's touch. Mm -hmm. I thought it was very well Mm -hmm. illustrated. So I think that's a good good transition, too, to talk about... um, Hokusai in general. Sorry, resting papers. As a father. 
And uh, oh boy, and and his it's complicated his particular weaknesses. I mean, maybe I know we talked a little bit about everybody having their imperfections and their um, their limitations. And it's interesting that the scene you're talking about when when she reaches up to touch his face and it's just this powerful still moment. Next scene, his immediate reaction is to paint her something to ward off evil spirits. And you have, again, OA kind of irritated with him and scornful of, uh, you know, she says that he's he's scared of sickness because he's weak. And, you know, he is. <laughs> that, yeah. that is his weakness, obviously. Throughout the movie, that's made clear. And poor Ono, like, I mean, she understands, like, despite what her her sister is telling her, you know, I mean, she, I think she's pretty knowing about about how her dad feels, and and it's interesting. Well, not interesting. That's such a shitty default word that I keep going back to. When Tetsuzo, you know, tries to do something for her in in his own way, you know, it doesn't it doesn't make up for all the time that he wasn't there for her and that she felt neglected, and it doesn't like undo the deep impression his absence has made because the first thing she thinks is like. Does he hate me? Because, like, being sick is part of who she is. And it's like immediately he wants to do this thing where he wants to, like, like change something. And she just, she perceives, like, everything he does as, like, as a push away. Because that's what he's been doing. That's that's what she knows is, is her dad pushing her away and neglecting her. And even when he's there, she's looking for that as kind of the default mode. Yeah, well, and I I think part of the profound sadness of her little character is the fact that she doesn't... I don't think it's so much that she feels neglected as that she feels responsible Mm. for her father's avoidance. uh, And that... And she carries this weight that because he can't be around um, her because of how she is that she won't be able to be a good daughter and she's going to go to hell. And the idea of, of hell and heaven and hell, does it exist? Um, it, it's scattered throughout the movie. Um, OA is uh, coming back to this question over and over. It's interesting, uh, in light of that, the, the fact that she paints the image of hell without a, an image of hope in it. It's almost like she has not reached a certain level of maturity, maybe, to to see that as necessary, that balance. Um, And I think that that moment... I'm sorry, I keep going back to things. I feel like I should do things in chronological order because then I keep coming back to the same points. But that moment where uh, she is with the male prostitute and they are... They talk about, you know, is there is there really heaven? And then he falls asleep on her. And 
she has her vision of his vision. And in, and that's when she asks, is there really heaven or hell? Because repeatedly, at this point, she's asked the question, is there heaven? But it isn't until that moment she, that she asks, is there heaven or hell? You know, mm. it seems that hell is a, an easier concept for her to get her mind around until that moment. Um, and oh. we see hell coming up because of her sister being concerned about going there. Uh, and then it's in that moment after she asks that question that, you know, she stepped on and then we open up and she's staring at the sun. Uh, so maybe that is a turning point for her somehow in her, in her perception of heaven. I mean, I'm looking at my notes and I don't see, um, her sister mentions going to hell after that point and she just pretty much is very, you're not going to, but she doesn't bring up the question again after that point. Um, and, and the, uh, you know, the whole deal with the painting needing to have the Buddha added to it, uh, happens before this. Right. So it seems like that whole idea culminates in this moment. Okay. When, just before Onao dies, and you have the scene where the mother is encouraging her to go tell her father to come see her. She's, you know, she's doing okay. She's not, you know, she's looking a lot better. Her color's been better. When she's clearly, I mean, the, she's the worst off that we've seen her up to this point in the movie. And uh, she complains to her mother about her father being a crybaby. And the mother, who's a very sort of under understated character mm -hmm. throughout, she verbalizes a, a connection with Hokusai saying that she's a crybaby too. So there's some understanding of his weakness. And when, when Oe arrives to see her father and to ask him to come and, and he says to her, uh, she tries to get him to go by saying all the things that the mother said. And she tells him, you're a lousy liar. Or, or, or I'm sorry, he tells her, you're a lousy liar. And that's why you can't snag a man. I think that's the closest their their sort of um, uh, weaknesses. That that's a moment where they're both kind of together. She's mm. immediately been sort of castigating him for being a crybaby and too weak to come around sickness, mm -hmm. and he is almost immediately after that saying she's a bad liar. And that's sort of the heart of her issue is her um, her desire to sort of uh, express emotion that she hasn't felt. You know, there's an insincerity behind those things because she can't connect with them in a certain way that she tries to force herself to. You know, a lot of what we were talking about earlier, the sensual paintings, and she can't put herself in that space. But right. she tries to force it by sort of lying her way through it in a sense, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, by doing it anyway, and it just doesn't work. Uh so I think that that moment is a good one in, in the sense that they're sort of recognizing the insufficiencies in, in each other right in the same moment. And that that's the moment uh, when her sister dies, you know, and, and in that moment, the wind starts to blow and the door is blown open. And yeah, she comes um, in and places a single red flower. It just sort of blows in, mm -hmm. you know, and the idea being, and of course... Hokusai says she made it here by herself. I mean, just... <sighs> it, it's so sad, and 
I, I, it's really hard for me to get past his weaknesses and like him, you mm-hmm. know, as a, as a dad, like, I do understand his point of view. I, you know, I, I, I am sensitive to the fact that his character is weighed down by a lot of guilt, uh, over his daughter's blindness in particular more so than her illness even um and feels like i mean at one point it says that he feels like he's responsible for it maybe because maybe because his sight and perception yeah uh, are so great yes and the quote is you know maybe i was the one who stole her sight and her life and i think it's interesting that here, look, I'm using the word interesting again, too. But, hey, it's interesting. It's cool. It's significant. Dope. That y- the little girl carried so much responsibility for in- her inability to be a good daughter. At the same time that her father, in a sort of childlike way, is carrying responsibility for her ailment and feeling guilty as though he had something to do with it. That's the thing is like you hit the nail on the head. The fact that he cannot get past it and shoulder that is a is a failing on him and his childlike and, and and immature and you know thank God for OA like bringing some warmth to her sister's world like in the time that she had and I mean I'm sure her father suspected that she wouldn't live long. But guess what? Like, she's your daughter. And even if you know that, like, it is, it's your responsibility to care for her and you should want to, like, enrich her life as much as possible because, you know, in her case, it's, it really is not about, like, the, the quantity. It's, like, the quality of her, of her remaining time. And, you know, the fact that, she feels responsible for being a bad daughter and feels like hellbound and everything like that. I mean, that's his fault. And it just, it upsets me tremendously. And like, yes, I mean, he's a great artist and everything like that. And he's, you know, a funny and, and like, uh, can be a good storyteller. Uh, and he's certainly not like a, like a two dimensional character or anything like that. It just like, by the end of the movie, I was very... I was shouting along with OA, like, for him to grow up and see his kid. Like, it was very upsetting to me. Yeah. I mean, definitely, it was hard to stomach. <sighs> very, very sad. Humans, man. I appreciate the powerful contrast between Hokusai laboring under this false burden that he had stolen his child's sight and the consistent and uh and loyal and beautiful efforts that OA made mm-hmm. in actual life to give her sister sight. She wasn't I mean for OA it didn't matter why she didn't see that wasn't a that wasn't really a question to be yeah. to be wrestled with or or uh, an obstacle that had to be gotten over before she could take action to give her sister sight 
in her own way. And, um, and, you know, it's very sort of narcissistic of him to this idea that he stole her life. Well, uh, you know, she had a beautiful life. Like, um, you know, I understand again what he was getting at, but, um, it just shows that he didn't appreciate. Exactly. Just, you know, the full value of her as a, as a, a rich and complex and mm-hmm. complete human being. And, and he's um, robbing her of further quite He is stealing her life in a, in a sense. I'm used, taking a dramatic license with those words, but by not... There's a space for him. There's a him-shaped hole in her life that he could have filled so easily. Yes. And the fact that he sees that in her death what OA finds in her death, of course, is the ability to um, cast off her own quest, her own sort of futile quest to um, express a kind of passion that she doesn't connect with and hmm. to take on art as an independent artist. You know, her father leaves her this painting to do is all hers, which which I took to mean, you know, don't do this one under my name. Like, it is all yours. And and I don't think that's unintentional at all. And right. that in that moment, you know, she starts to work on it. But before she does, she throws out all her drafts that she had been working on and just went out and talked with her sister. Hmm. So, yeah, I think it's just a an illustration that she has been able to cross this bridge with the, with the help of her sister. A bridge, you say? A bridge, indeed, <laughs> a bridge. Oh, bridges, so significant. And um, and uh, the next the next painting you see is the one that she's painted of her sister. Hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was it. Was a beautiful painting. So sister crosses over into death. Hokusai crosses over into some sort of realization of the actual guilt that he bore, sort of. And OA crosses over into this newfound ability to sort of take ownership of her own art. Yeah. So uh, the, the girl who loved Bridges ends up being kind of a bridge yes. for others to yes. to move uh, into new phases of their, their lives. An image that will stay with me that cements the unity of the three of them is the one where you see them together in the boat, in the wave. So the painting is Hokusai's, which invokes him in that scene. And then mm. OA mm. is putting her sister's hand in the water to give her that perception of water. You know, they're all just kind of, it's a representation of all of them, the, their strengths, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, we talked about the, the coming together of sort of their weaknesses and their insufficiencies, but I think that that is a powerful image of the things they do right, you know, that he is excellent at helping OAC 
and she is excellent at helping her sister see. Mm. And so, so even yeah. though it's there's not the direct connection that you would want to see between Hokusai and Onao, she serves as that bridge, if mm-hmm. we can bring that in again. Um, she serves as that conduit between the two of them. Uh, and it's just sort of a, it's a system. You know, their family is a system. And God bless mom. You know, she's in mm. there. She's being, we didn't get a lot of her in here, but by golly, she cares about all of them. She seems to be a very peaceful presence uh, in all of their lives. Yes. Even though I don't, I, I think she is an ex-wife in reality. Yeah, it was, I was unclear on the nature yeah, of the relationship. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, ta- we're taking some pretty solid historical liberties, I think, with this <laughs> whole story of the movie in particular but yeah yeah um uh, one thing um i wanted to note is that um as a member myself of a fairly dysfunctional family and as the oldest of two siblings uh there were things that i appreciated about the movie kind of Making it feel like OA was in many ways like holding the family together. Like she was like kind of going back and forth between all three, you know, the the rest of them and trying in some ways to bring them together. But like, I mean, not, not super forcing it uh, with like the mom. That's fair. And And I think as we do. You know, I think it takes a certain amount of maturity in our life to appreciate the people in our family as the imperfect humans that they are. And to come to a realization that just because they maybe weren't everything that you needed or wanted them to be, they were everything they could be. And that that served a purpose in your life. And you you just come to appreciate your parents in particular as actual, fully realized human beings. And it changes mm-hmm. the way you see a lot of things, I think, when you look back. Just imagine if instead of, oh no, it was OA that met an untimely demise. I mean, she was... She was the like the beating heart of the family. Like the mom would be kind of cut off from uh Tetsuzo who would never see his daughter or have reason to reconnect with you know, with their mother. Like every and, and he would be despondent because his one true protege was now gone. Like she <laughs> she like added uh, so much to all of their lives and like really was the key member of that unit she made it the unit without her they're just mostly like just these three separate lives um, not the role that the not parent should be filling <laughs> but it's often forced upon but people. it is it is what it is yeah. you know and I think that that is important to realize for the movie's purposes. Yes. You know, it's, yes. there's the recognition of the ways, you know, like, like Hokusai wants 
OA to be able to do, you know, don't think too highly of yourself because you won't be able to recognize the ways in which you are falling short in your craft. So on the one hand, you know, yes, be aware. On the other hand, realize that you aren't going to just fix everything Mm -hmm. in one fell swoop. You know, it is a process and a process that may take a lifetime. Yeah. Everything can't be ideal, unfortunately. You know what's really important? What's that? That we have neglected to talk about to this point. Well, we talked about the puppy already. Oh, the rockin' soundtrack. Ha! <laughs> <That's> <laughs> right. That, like, scene at the beginning. Yeah. When and she, at the end. And, but, like, yes. I don't know if it's the same song, but, like, the one at the beginning. But it's rockin' at the beginning and the end. It, it reminds... It might have been taking care of business when she's yeah, running across the wooden bridge. I know. Uh, yeah, I feel like it's the it's the stock version. <laughs> the um, royalty free TCB. Yes, yes, yes. That I mean, it, not that I don't deeply appreciate it. If there's one thing about the movie that maybe didn't quite like, it was a little it was, discordant. Just those moments where it has happened. At, uh, and at the yeah. end too where I was just like I, I don't know if this fits my mood right now um, and the, uh, the very abrupt change at the very end to like modern day just for like a second that was interesting uh huh well you know I thought that that was another little um, gesture towards this idea of connection that, that ta- time not being uh, a separator of beings mm-hmm. in reality because they show yes. the same place in japan yeah. but in modern you know and super slick boat going under that same yeah. bridge like yeah. it m- more of this idea of like reality is bigger than you think and yes and maybe i mean and and the spiritual realm was so recurrent throughout the film and such an important presence you know the thought of um the thought of all of their presences just sort of lingering on and around the bridge and, you know, yes, living on as they do in their art, you know, maybe in some mystical sense, uh, in in many ways, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I thought about a lot of the, the same things I thought when I was reading Charles Williams all those years ago uh, mm-hmm. when we were watching this about um, uh, individuals' lives being connected over distance, time, life, you know, You're through death. You're thinking of descent like, and yep, hell. Descent and mm-hmm. hell, yeah, absolutely. It, it is a, when when the idea is put forward in fiction, it's one that, or even I, I think it's being put forward, but the author didn't intend it necessarily. Like it's, I gravitate toward it because it's one that I'm, pretty fascinated by yeah it is interesting and i mean that descent into hell which is totally a rabbit trail but you know it it kind of takes its root in a shelley poem i want to say mm-hmm. magisoros for my dead child met an image of himself walking in the garden and it's i mean zoroastrianism was very mystical and right. it's you know babylonian kind of mysticism but but yeah you have mysticism at play here too and i think we have talked the fuck through this yeah and uh in our own roundabout way you know. no stone unturned 
might need to uh, remove some stones from the garden. Like, <laughs> oh, probably turned over a few too many stones. Yeah. Repeated a few things several hundred times. <laughs> but, yes, yes, I enjoyed the heck out of that. Yeah, let's give our kind of... Um, Final final thoughts summations oh, and then we can wrap it up. Conclusions suck. Well, I can I can go first then and just say like I know that um, at least in my experience there hasn't been like a lot of podcast coverage about this film. What I had heard uh, was was pretty brief and kind of um, I feel like undersold the movie because I think this is a really excellent movie. I think thematically it is a tight package. There's lots of parallels between the characters. There's lots of amazing juxtapositions. There are some important messages that are fully fleshed out and given a lot of time and space to to breathe the themes. Well, it's not like the most amazing uh film visually that I've ever seen, but is very bright and colorful and pretty. Um, certainly not one where you will be bored visually. I think the the art design itself is quite good. Like the the storyboarding, the uh the layouts, um the architecture, you know, and the we've already talked about um, you know, some of the character designs being quite good. I mean it's a story about an artist uh, as a, as a family drama, um, as a, and as a a period piece about later Edo, uh, I think it's wildly successful uh, on on all those fronts. Um, not going to buy the soundtrack, but uh, that's okay. <laughs> um, uh, it's it's a wonderful movie, and it's one that I do think if you haven't seen it, listen to the first part of this podcast where where annie details a lot of the history and there's that one fast forward it if you (laughs) if you feel uh the urge as well i think well i think knowing that one rich reviewing and i think this is a movie that at least i feel like you can come back to i certainly want to watch it again um I think there are, there are things that I will pick up on this time, but I I totally recommend it. Absolutely, he speaks for all of us. No, <laughs> where is that from? What is that? <laughs> I don't remember. What is that from? Oh, uh, the cowbell sketch, <laughs> Horatio Sands character. Yes, yes. He speaks for all of us. Um, uh, mm, the movie was beautiful. It was simple and quiet but powerful um just the kind of movie i love it was it was such an interesting uh contrast too to paprika which was my mm. last viewing i mean just if if movies were colors that one is all red obviously this mm. one was just blues very just calm quiet i loved it loved it would definitely recommend well, I guess that is going to do it for this episode of Companion Piece. Um, Annie, thanks so much for watching the movie and for all your outstanding contributions, your research. If you enjoyed this episode, uh, please uh, 
subscribe on iTunes to uh, What Are We Death Show. That is kind of the umbrella that this podcast will be going under. That's um, kind of the main longer podcast uh, that I do with Shadon and Vorgalia. Uh, you, again, you can subscribe to that on iTunes it's, uh, or SoundCloud um, or follow the account on Twitter uh, to get updates as well when, when new episodes come out if you don't use a podcatcher. Um, and it's W-A-R-U-I-D-E-S-H-O-U. And if you have feedback for Annie or myself, you can email us at waterydesho at gmail.com or, or tweet at me at the subtle doctor on Twitter and I will uh, pass those along to uh, the waifu here. Which means he will read the nice ones to me and not tell me about the bad ones. So far, no bad ones. So far, we're in the clear. Let's not, let's not tempt <laughs> That's That information does not need to be put out there. Well, until next time, everybody, embrace each other, everyone, to the ends of the universe. Mm-hmm.